One real big question also is whether looking at Proposition 8 and the campaign that led to it and the animus that was underlying that campaign, whether that should be extended to mean that the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause require gay marriage across the country. That's a more interesting question and, and a hard one to, uh, to answer. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is off today. We would uh, like, of course, to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. And also Clio, the web-based practice management software available at goclio.com. Well, this week uh, brought a landmark decision uh, in Perry versus Schwarzenegger, uh, in which U.S. District Chief Judge Vaughn Walker in San Francisco struck down the controversial and much debated California Proposition 8, uh, which had been approved by the state's voters in November 2008. Judge Walker ruled that denying marriage rights to same-sex couples was unconstitutional. Attorneys supporting the voter-approved ban had filed a, have filed a notice of appeal in the case on Thursday, uh, one day after the ruling came down. So the uh, the case is certainly far from over, and uh, by all accounts, appears headed to the Supreme Court. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to talk about the uh, this case uh, and uh, some of the broader issues surrounding gay marriage uh, and the likelihood of this issue making its way to the Supreme Court. And to do that, we have three guests to uh, help us talk about this. Joining us first today is a returning guest to the program, Adam Winkler. Adam is a constitutional law professor at UCLA Law School. His scholarship has touched on a variety of issues, including the right to bear arms, voting rights, corporate free speech rights, and judicial independence. He uh, had a piece on the Huffington Post this week entitled, How Will the Supreme Court Rule on Same-Sex Marriage? Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adam Winkler. Thanks for having me. Next to join us this week is Professor Nelson Tebby from Brooklyn Law School, where he teaches constitutional law, religion, and the law and professional responsibility. Uh, Nelson's scholarship focuses on the relationship between religious traditions and constitutional law, both in the United States and abroad. He has extensively researched the legal theories and litigation strategies that define how courts should view marriage. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Nelson Tebby. Thank you very much. And finally, joining us today is Thomas J. Barber. Uh, Tom is an attorney with the Family Law Department uh, at Deutsch Williams Brooks Dorensis and Holland in Boston. He's also the chair of the Family Law Section of the Massachusetts Bar Association. 
uh, and is joining us uh, today in that capacity. Uh, his his practice concentrates on probate and domestic relations, uh, and he's testified at the Massachusetts State House on behalf of the Massachusetts Bar Association regarding a number of family law bills, as well as been a panel participant and chair for probate and family law issues uh, for the uh, Mass Bar and for the Boston Bar Association. He's serving on the, uh, also serves on the MBA's 2009-2010 Budget and Finance Committee, uh, a busy person. Welcome to the show, Tom Barber. Thank you. A lot to talk about here uh, regarding this case uh, and uh, uh, and and uh, the, the issues uh, even more broadly. Uh, but I guess I'd, I'd like to just kind of start by uh, perhaps uh, going around the, the virtual table here and getting your uh, quick impressions from each of you uh, about, about uh, the opinion that came down this week. Uh, Adam Winkler, let's start with you. Well, this was clearly a landmark decision, right? This law, this was a challenge to a voter-approved ballot proposition passed in California. Uh, Listeners may recall that a few years ago, the California Supreme Court held that the California Constitution required gay marriage. That decision was overturned by a ballot measure known as Proposition 8. It revised the California Constitution to prohibit gay marriage. And this case was a constitutional challenge to that prohibition based not on the California Constitution, but on the U.S. Constitution. That's what's so different about this decision. Listeners have heard about dozens of court decisions on same-sex marriage over the last few years, but they've all been decisions under state constitutional law. This is the first case in federal court asserting that marriage equality was required by the U.S. Constitution, namely the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. And uh, Nelson Tebby, how about your reaction? Well, like Adam, I, I think it's an important decision. Um, as you noted in, in your opening remarks, it's not the uh, last stage of this case. Um, this case will certainly be appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, an intermediate appellate court, and then most likely will be heard by the United States Supreme Court. Um, so although the case is important, um, it's, not, uh, it's not the final word from the federal courts on Proposition 8 or the broader issue of of gay marriage. However, the the case is significant because uh, the decision is because um, the trial judge here, um, Judge Walker, um, did make strong factual findings um, based on uh, witness testimony, uh, especially expert witness testimony. And um, those factual findings uh, could be significant later on because uh, factual findings by a trial court are generally deferred to by appellate courts. Uh, so the case could be really important in that regard. The legal analysis performed by Judge Walker, although um, I think persuasive, uh, will not be deferred to by uh, subsequent courts, uh, and so is of less significance. So I think when we're talking about and assessing um, the legal arguments, we should uh, really uh, be operating with a blank slate and thinking about what the best arguments are. I happen to think that although the arguments offered by Judge Walker are correct, they're maybe not the strongest available arguments. All right. And uh, I want to talk about some of those points uh, in, in more detail. But first, I want to hear from Tom Barber and get your uh, general impressions about this opinion. Well, I, I thought what was interesting was in comparing it with, we recently had a challenge to DOMA here in Massachusetts, where a federal court judge uh, said that these Massachusetts residents, uh, citizens, should not be denied federal benefits. Um, just because they're same-sex partners. And then you have this case 
which is a challenge to a voter issue, Proposition 8. And it was interesting because it shows the difference of when you have a civil rights issue going to voters and coming up with Proposition 8, later on it being challenged in the federal court and what happens to that challenge. And I found the case to be a really interesting read about the difference what happened when Proposition 8 was passed in California and then later on at the trial, what issues were heard legally. So I found that to be very interesting. And I think this is what we all talk about when we were when you know, law students, uh, some of us years ago, many years ago. But I think it's a very interesting read about the, the difference in the cases with witnesses and how you, you bring your case with constitutional and due process issues, uh, the equal rights and due process to the court's attention and how you present a case, how you defend a case. I thought that was very interesting. And Tom, you mentioned that the, the case that came out of Massachusetts uh, uh, not long ago. I think no, it was the uh, first 8th. week of July or so. Yeah. Was that a constitutional issue decided on a constitutional basis also, or, or what was the uh, ruling in that case? It, it's interesting. It, it was, but it was mostly, it, was, it had to do with federal benefits. So it's interesting. Like, you know, the original case of Goodrich in Massachusetts for same-sex marriage had to do with a group of citizens saying they couldn't get a marriage license from a particular, uh, from the state, you know, whatever towns they were applying for, for marriage licenses, because of the virtue of them being a same-sex couple. And they, are, they were saying, we are denied a marriage license in order to get married to get this license because um, of us being a same-sex couple, and what it means is that we're denied all of these benefits that go along with marriage. And Goodrich was decided back in November 2003 and then took effect in May of 2004. And in the federal case, it had to do with plaintiffs who were being denied federal benefits. And so they challenged Section 3 of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, and they the court found that DOMA was unconstitutional in that did discriminate against these plaintiffs, that these plaintiffs were not allowed uh, certain benefits of federal benefits. I mean, it was decided on summary judgment, all except for one issue regarding um, federal um, benefits for one of the plaintiffs. Well, now, since uh, Judge Walker's opinion has come out this week, uh, of course, the the speculation is uh, that that this is uh, most certainly destined to reach the, the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, I think there certainly has been some who are saying that uh, you know the way he way he drafted this opinion, uh, as, as Professor Tebby mentions, his, his uh, heavy reliance on on findings of fact here, are all sort of uh, teeing the case up, I guess, for uh, for the appellate process. Uh, Adam, you wrote uh, this week uh, about uh, what might happen uh, going forward with this case. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Of course, no one knows what the future will bring or what the Supreme Court will do. They're somewhat unpredictable on some cases. But the supporters of gay marriage have good reason to be hopeful in this case. First, the appeal will go to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which is famously the most liberal circuit in the nation. There's a good chance that uh, the panel of judges chosen to hear this case will be sympathetic to the gay marriage position. But second, and perhaps more importantly, if this case goes up to the United States Supreme Court, um, there's a good chance that there are five votes on the court today uh, against the gay marriage ban. The four most conservative justices on the court, Justices Scalia, Alito, Thomas, and Chief Justice Roberts, will almost certainly vote to reverse Judge Walker's decision. 
the four most progressive justices will likely vote the other way. And here I'm speaking of uh, Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and the newly confirmed uh, Elena Kagan. Uh, while Sotomayor and Kagan don't really have enough of a record on gay rights issues to know exactly how they might approach uh, the equal protection and due process issues posed by this case, most experts believe they'll vote on the liberal side. That leaves the usual swing vote on the Roberts Court, which is Justice Anthony Kennedy. And that's especially intriguing, because the Supreme Court has ruled on two major gay rights cases in the last 15 years, both times siding with the gays and lesbians challenging discriminatory laws. The majority's decisions in both cases were written by none other than Justice Kennedy. He has a terrific record on gay rights issues, and the arguments he made in those majority decisions were exactly the arguments that Judge Walker tried to satisfy with his factual findings uh, and with his uh, reasoning in this opinion uh, handed down this week. And, and, you know, I should say that we uh, we did reach out uh, to some of the... Uh, Parties that were involved in in the in the California case uh, in in uh, in upholding uh, Proposition Eight in favor of upholding Proposition Eight to try and get them on the show today, and we were not successful uh, in doing that. Uh, but uh, Nelson Tebby, let me turn to you and ask. Uh, uh, you heard what what Adam Winkler said about the fact that uh, this this could could really go either way uh, if it makes it to the Supreme Court. Is that how you see it as well? Well, I, I think there. I think he's correct. Yes, I, I think there's reason for um, some optimism um, when we're contemplating um, a Supreme Court decision in this case, um, and the reasons are, you know, the the ones that he outlined, um, chiefly focusing on um, the the likely opinion of Justice Kennedy. Um, uh, you know, there were two theories that that uh, Judge Walker foregrounded, and those were the theories that were foregrounded by the lawyers in this case. Um, David Boyce and, and Ted Olson, and those have to do with um, uh, uh, the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, and Judge Walker said um, that he thinks there is a fundamental right to marry under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment that encompasses um, the right to marry for same-sex couples, um, and also that discrimination against uh, gays and lesbians um, would violate the equal protection clause. And uh, I think that while both of those are are, are probably correct in theory, um, they they face some challenges. Um, uh, courts so far that have looked at these cases have uh, been reluctant to say that there's a due process fundamental right to marry that encompasses um, a right to marry for gay and lesbian couples, and that's because um, uh, in the argument of these courts. Um, Marriage has not traditionally uh, focused on or, or included gay and lesbian couples, and due process uh, uh, analysis typically looks to the past um, to see, uh, you know, how uh, to, to determine its scope. Um, so that argument has has not been too successful in state courts. The other argument that Judge Walker made was that um, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation is suspect and should trigger um, careful review by federal courts. Um, that argument um, also has not uh, has not won too many hearings among uh, state courts. Um, he said as a fallback that even if that weren't the case, um, uh, this this law isn't even rational. That is, it's it's uh, it, it expresses discrimination or moral pro, uh, prohibition or or condemnation that's 
that's irrational or arbitrary. Um, and among state courts, uh, that that um, argument has had mixed success only. Um, in Massachusetts, uh, of course, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts struck down um, a prohibition on same-sex marriage, um, saying that it was not rational. But virtually every other state that's applied a rational basis review has gone the other way. So there are some some weaknesses um, to the two arguments that Judge Walker put forward. Um, I think, um, though, that there's well, can another. I, can I just stop? Can I, can I just stop you there and ask? I mean, with respect to that point, wasn't he wasn't he careful to say, you know, whatever standard of review you apply to this case, uh, it, it wouldn't hold up. Yeah, he was right. So either either it's a kind of either this law is suspect because it discriminates against gays and lesbians, in which case um, uh, it, it would likely be struck down, or or um, it's not suspect, but we just we ask whether there's any rational reason um, that could justify it. Um, and he thinks that there wasn't, and he relied heavily on factual findings to say that. Um, but the problem is, uh, at least when it comes to rational basis review, he's, he, he's not, he doesn't have a lot of company among other courts that have looked at this issue. Right. I hear you. Uh, uh, Tom Barber, I mean, do you, do you think in his discussion of the standard of review, again, that was an attempt to kind of tee this up for, for the appellate process? Uh, his, 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 uh, he, you know, he said uh, essentially that Prop, Prop 8 cannot withstand any level of scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. Right. I, I think it's interesting because, you know, he, he gives his reasons and states over and over again, Judge Walker, that this deprives them of due process and of equal protection. And if this goes to the Supreme Court, when you start to look at levels of scrutiny in Massachusetts, there appears to have been a dispute as to what kind of scrutiny would be applied. And it, you know, it was a five to four decision. When you read the dissent, you know, some of the dissenters say it's it's not a um, fundamental right. Marriage is a privilege. Some of them say this isn't, you know, one of the judges says it's not really our job. Let the legislators decide. In this case, we already have a Proposition 8 that was enacted and is being challenged. So some of the arguments wouldn't work. Maybe some of them would. It, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I think in this case, you know, the judge is saying, you know, show me what you have. What, what have you got here for any basis for this um, this Proposition 8 being not, you know, a violation of anyone's due process or equal protection? And they, it seems as though they were really struggling with coming up with something. You know, they had two so-called expert witnesses. One of them um, this uh, David Blankenhorn was completely disregarded. His testimony, the judge said, would be given no weight. Uh, his testimony was contradictory, and um, he even says that marriage of same-sex couples would probably, you know, promote stability. I mean, so they tried to, to the proponents tried to formulate their case in cross-examination of the nine witnesses that the plaintiffs had, and, and it doesn't sound as though they did a very good job. The, the plaintiffs had, you know, other than the four witnesses who were lay people, the four um, plaintiffs themselves testified about why they wanted to get married and uh, their feelings about that in, in marriage versus some other type of union. And uh, the expert witnesses, and, and the judge found that their expert witnesses were qualified in their field, and they had provided um, credible testimony about specific issues, whereas the proponents had no experts regarding marriage. I mean, the plaintiffs had psychologists, a historian, you know, so these people just discussed the history of marriage. They discussed psychological issues regarding marriage and families, 
and the, the proponents didn't come up with that. So when this goes forward, what you look at is what happened at the trial level. And in this case, it does not seem as though proponents were able to put their case in successfully at all through uh, testimony or cross-examination. And, you know, you, you're not later going to create at the appellate court level or at the Supreme Court level something that did not happen at this trial. So, they, you know, they did not appear to have adequate wit- witnesses with any basis for Proposition 8, you know, staying in place. So, so what is likely to be uh, the, the Achilles heel for this case uh, going through the appellate process? Is, is it this question about whether the state has any legitimate interest in, in sort of preserving the traditional institution of, uh, uh, of uh, marriage as, as between a man and a woman? Uh, or, 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 or what do you see as, as the potential weaknesses? Adam, let me ask you that question. Well, I think the main potential weakness is that this is clearly a ruling that is uh, establishing a new constitutional principle, that gay marriage is included in the Constitution. And it's based on uh, some older, more established principles, such as the idea that there is a fundamental right to marry, a right that has been recognized repeatedly by the Supreme Court, and also uh, principles of equality, which has been recognized by the court. I think, actually, a lot of people... Uh, suspect that uh, the main weakness or Achilles heel for this case is the standard of review question, that uh, low, that the, when this goes up on appeal, if the appellate courts agree that uh, a deferential or rational basis standard of review applies to this law, the law will be invalidated. I'm not so sure about that. Again, I point to Justice Kennedy's opinion in the two major gay rights cases that have been heard by the Supreme Court, Romer against Evans uh, and Lawrence against Texas. Both those cases, uh, they, they're kind of ambiguous about the standard of review that uh, is applied. Uh, but when I teach those cases in constitutional law, I find my students generally think that the language supports rational basis review as the applicable standard, and yet the laws are invalidated. And the reason why is because while we can all think of some governmental interest to justify virtually any kind of law, and that usually satisfies rational basis review, the truth is, uh, and this is where the findings of Judge Walker are really so important, uh, if you look at the history of Proposition 8 and the, and the ballot campaign to get this law passed, there was evidence of animus against gays and lesbians. And whatever governmental interests you argue are supporting a law, if the court believes that a law is primarily based in animus, uh, then uh, the court generally strikes it down. One real big question also is whether looking at Proposition 8 and the campaign that led to it and the animus that was underlying that campaign, whether that should be extended to mean that the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause require gay marriage across the country. That's a more interesting question and, and a hard one to, uh, to answer. We need to just take a short break right now. We'll be back in just a few minutes to continue our discussion of uh, this, uh, this momentous decision. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. 
Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are joined by Adam Winkler, constitutional law professor at UCLA Law School, by Nelson Tebbe, a constitutional law professor at Brooklyn Law School, and Thomas J. Barber, a uh, family law attorney and chair of the family law section of the Massachusetts Bar Association. Um, we... Uh, the this this case uh, is we, we've alluded to the fact that this case is is heavy on on, on its factual findings, um, and yet as I as I read through them, I I wondered uh, you know how well grounded those those findings are in the sense that uh, you know a, another judge uh, with perhaps <laughs> a different perspective on this issue could have taken some of the same evidence and interpreted it in a slightly different way uh, uh, will the appellate courts give give deference to uh, judge walker's findings in this case and and how critical will those findings be uh, as this case moves through the appeal process uh and uh, Nelson Tebby, I'll, I'll ask you that question. Well, you know, court, uh, appellate courts are generally deferential to factual findings by district courts, but they're not, they don't always defer. Um, they can uh, question those findings if they find them implausible. Um, I think, you know, I think a, a judge in a, on an appellate court, either the Ninth Circuit or Supreme Court, who wanted to um, go the other way, that is to approve Proposition 8, um, probably wouldn't have to engage too directly with the factual findings of Judge Walker. I mean, they, uh, someone like that would probably try to skirt them um, by saying something like, look, in the end, Judge Walker concluded that um, what was really motivating this law was moral disapproval of gay marriage. Um, and uh, I think a, a judge who wanted to uphold Proposition A could say something like, um, that's a rational basis uh, for uh, um, for passing legislation. We have lots of laws in the United States that express moral disapproval towards certain conduct, and, and this is just one of them. So um, while, I, while I agree with um, Ad, Adam Winkler and, and everything that he said, and, and I hope he's right to, um, in his optimism with regard to Justice Kennedy, I, I think um, uh, it's possible to, to, to conceive of a judge going the other way, uh, even, even with these factual findings on the record. 
What about the timing issue? I mean, a lot of the people who were, uh, you know, there were a lot of gay rights advocates were were concerned that this case uh, was was premature in in the sense that uh, society and and, and the courts uh, perhaps uh, are, are not ready to accept uh, gay marriage as an institution. Uh, you know, I, I've heard uh, before we started the show, uh, several of you were saying there was some some great lawyering uh, in this case. Uh, but uh, is it premature? Uh, are, you know, what is this issue going to be just decided in the courts and how are the courts going to going to deal with it? Tom, let me ask you. Well, it's interesting because um, that's what some people thought in Massachusetts, including myself at the time. I thought, gee, this seems a little early to be challenging you know, same-sex marriage issue in Massachusetts it seems a little early, a little premature. Maybe we didn't even have a civil union uh, situation here in Massachusetts as Vermont did at the time. Um, but, you know, they took it forward on, on this basis that their rights were being uh, discriminated against. And in this case, what, what's interesting is that, I, I mean, when do states have amendments that take away people's rights? And that's what Proposition 8 is, the state amendment to take away somebody's rights, this right of marriage. And they were unable to prove in this case that a same-sex marriage had in any way any kind of negative effect whatsoever on a heterosexual marriage. And so it was clear to the judge, and he points that out, that basically you have one group of citizens that feel as though they're somehow more superior than other citizens because they're a heterosexual couple who's married as opposed to a same-sex couple who's married, and they had no basis, and there's no, they couldn't defend it in any way. And what, what it points out is, in this case, that how Proposition was passed, how Proposition 8 was passed, the same um, media and the same commercialism and everything that went into this, as we discussed, animus, fear, all of this, can't be used at the trial. That's not evidence. So you can put an ad on TV saying somehow that same-sex couples are going to be a danger to children. You pay for commercial, you can put it on, right? So you can do that. But at the trial, what's your evidence? So they couldn't do anything like that at the trial because there was no evidence that same-sex couples in any way, you know, were a threat to children or anything else. So they put this fear into people, and a lot of money came from out of state to pass Proposition 8 in order to encourage people to vote. One of the big things uh, in the Proposition 8 passing, and it's mentioned in the case, is that um, people were saying, oh, we're afraid our children are going to be taught about same-sex marriage in public schools now and all this. It's really interesting just to point out in Massachusetts, ironically, there was a same-sex couple of women who were Catholic and they were sending their child to Catholic school. And at some point, some of the other parents didn't like that. And the administration decided to tell the parents that they could no longer enroll this child in Catholic school. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't even private school, it was Catholic school. And then they later rescinded. I mean, here it is, you know, and there's an argument to be made, I think we're not sure in the Supreme Court, because there's an argument to be made, maybe the most conservative thing somebody can do is get married. So, you know, when Ted Olson talks about this not being a liberal or conservative issue, and not a gay rights issue, it's really an equal rights issue and a due process issue. I think that's what it is. And, you know, you sit here and you watch all of these hearings on Supreme Court justice nominees, and everybody says, are you going to uphold the Constitution? Are you going to uphold the Constitution? Well, who's interpreting it? interpretation of the Constitution is the questioner, you know, referring to. You know, if you look at the interpret any interpretation of the Constitution, you would say, this case is great for a due process and um, equal protection clause challenge. And of course,
it doesn't meet the standards. So it's kind of interesting because somebody who really looks at the Constitution who on the Supreme Court or elsewhere in the court that you may think would um, not vote on behalf of things that couples or gay rights, whatever you want to call it, may decide this is a constitutional issue. And that's all it is. You, you know, I, I, this is Nelson Tebby. If I could just uh, respond to this, I, you know, when, when I when I first heard of the suit by Boys and Olson, I, I was I too was sort of uh, a little worried about the timing. Um, but I, I must say, I think they've really convinced me. Um, I, I think Adam Winkler is correct that there's good reason to be optimistic in the Supreme Court. Um, I think that Ted Olson's involvement has made a lot of people. Uh, question their opposition to same-sex marriage. Um, and I also think that, um, you know, there is a good argument that they can use in the Supreme Court. Uh, not a single court that's applied strict scrutiny to bans on same-sex marriage anywhere has upheld them. Not a single court. So if we can get the court to apply strict scrutiny, um, and maybe if we can't, um, that was Adam Winkler's point, but if we can, I think there's there's really good reason to think that the Supreme Court would go this way. And there's already a case on the Supreme Court's um, uh, books uh, uh, um, that did apply strict scrutiny to um, a selective denial of marriage rights to people. And that was a case where the court struck down a Wisconsin law that limited, uh, that, that prohibited uh, people who were behind on their child support payments from from marrying. And they did that not on a pure due process theory that there's a, there's a fundamental right to marry. They didn't go that far. Um, and they didn't do it because discriminating against people who are behind on their child support payments um, is, is a sort of suspect discrimination. But they said, when you put those two things together, um, the, the really serious interest that people have in marrying um, and uneven-handed treatment by the government, you can get to strict scrutiny. And I think that's just what's happening here. Um, even if we don't declare that there's a fundamental right to marry under the Due Process Clause, marriage is really important in our society. Um, and when the government uh, uh, denies access to, to that important institution in, an, in a way that's not even-handed, as it's doing here, um, I think we should get to strict scrutiny and, and, and the law should be struck down. We are unfortunately running a little bit over, running a little bit late, uh, and I do want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, kind of have your share your closing thoughts on this topic. Uh, so, uh, I'll ask each of you to to do that. Perhaps be uh, a little bit uh, concise, but also if you want to let our listeners know as you do that uh, how they can follow up with you, uh, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. So, uh, Adam Winkler, let me start with you. Well, it's absolutely right that when uh, David Boyd and Ted Olson brought this case, a lot of organizations, including most of the major gay rights organizations, were against this lawsuit for fear of the Supreme Court. Um, they wanted to wait a while. But, you know, the truth is you could say that about any major constitutional change we've had, which is, oh, you should wait a little bit longer. We should wait a little bit longer. Uh, and uh, the case is now in the courts. There's no, uh, uh, there's no debate about that. Uh, and so it is going to work its way up through the courts. Who knows whether it will make it to the Supreme Court or not. Uh, but this case is a live dispute, and uh, um, uh, I expect to have plenty more to talk about uh, and plenty more interesting issues and turns and developments on same-sex marriage over the next couple of years. If people want to reach me, uh, I'm uh, available through the uh, simple Google search for Adam Winkler. You'll come up with my webpage. You can also follow me on Twitter at Adam Winkler. And, and I did just today follow you on Twitter, Adam Winkler, so uh, I'll be Thank watching you. what you have to say. Uh, and uh, Nelson Tebbe, your final thoughts. 
Well, uh, as I said, I, I, I think this this is an, a, a good time to bring this suit. I, I think there's a really good chance that the plaintiffs will be successful in the Supreme Court, um, and uh, and I think there's a theory on which they could do it um, even without making new law. Um, uh, so those are those are my thoughts. And uh, if people want to reach me, um, all of my information is available on the Brooklyn Law School website. Very good, Tom Barber. You get the last word. Uh, I just want to say that, uh, thank you for having me, but on behalf of the Mass Bar Association, uh, we've always been interested in protecting people's civil rights, and I think that's what this case is about. It's a civil rights issue, just as previously the Loving versus Virginia case that was overturned regarding interracial marriage was. And in that case, again, it was the argument was, oh, gee, it's not fair to the potential children that could come out of these interracial marriages. But there's nothing to back that up, just like in this case, there's nothing to back up the proponent's position. And so hopefully it will remain as it is and Proposition 8 will you know, go away. Um, so I'm not even sure if it's going to make it all the way to the Supreme Court. But nevertheless, I think it is a civil rights issue. And I uh, think Judge Walker made the right decision. And if people want to follow up with you, how's, how best to do that? Oh, uh, they can. I'm available through the Mass Bar Association website and also my law firm website at Deutsche Williams. DWBoston.com. Very good. Thank you. Well, I, I'd like to thank all three of you for taking the time and, and sharing your uh, insights uh, on this uh, case. Uh, very interesting conversation today. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that, uh, of course, all of our programs are available at thelegaltalknetwork.com and on iTunes in the podcast library there. And that you can get CLE credit for listening to this program through the West Legal Ed Center. Uh, go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and uh, click on the West Legal Ed Center icon there to to uh, find your way into the West Legal Ed Center. Um, we will be back next week uh, with another great program. Thanks for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Somm. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.